There is a future beyond shell. It is necessary, overdue, and inevitable. In its place, we are building a clean, fair, and affordable energy democracy. Get ready. Oil and gas major shell has contributed significantly to the climate crisis. It has long impeded a just transition away from fossil fuels. But what are the pathways to a future beyond shell? If we are serious about putting a stop to the polluting colonial capitalist company, we need to take a good look at the options. Bankrupting, carbon pricing, suing, nationalizing. What can we achieve with these strategies? Welcome to the Future Beyond Shell podcast, in which we explore potential pathways to responsibly dismantle Shell as we know it. We are your hosts, Archina Ramanujan and Marisol Reindl. Before introducing the topic of our first episode and welcoming our guests, we want to tell you just a little bit about ourselves, as well as a little bit more about the series in general. My name is Archana. My pronouns are she, her. I am a researcher and activist working on countering the climate crisis and colonial capitalism. As a Dutch person of color, I feel a commitment to marginalized people heavily impacted by Shell's dirty business. My grandfather also worked for Shell, which deepens my sense of responsibility to tackle the company. What about you, Marisol? My name is Marisol and my pronouns are she, her. For a couple of years now, I've been involved in climate justice groups that target fossil fuel giants, including Shell, by organizing mass civil disobedience actions. Street mobilizations have become more difficult to carry out since the onset of the corona pandemic. So I decided to focus more on researching what I feel are some of the most pressing questions we have been facing in framing our campaigns, and I'm super excited to do this with my wonderful co-host. With this podcast, we want to address what we see as a gap in the discussion on climate justice. At the core of it, we want to understand how to deal with the position and power of fossil fuel companies in the context of a just transition. Fossil fuel companies are, after all, drivers of climate crisis. They are complicit in the underlying systems of capitalism and colonialism, which we will explore further in our episodes. We believe a deeper reckoning with these companies and underlying systems is necessary in order to move towards an equitable future for everyone. We hope this will help movements build their campaigns and actions against fossil fuel giants in a more strategic and intentional way. A fundamental idea that the Future Beyond Shell project puts forward is that Shell cannot continue to exist, or at least not in its current form, if we want a just and regenerative future. We believe that we need to end corporations like Shell and fundamentally restructure our energy systems as well as political economies. This is the base assumption we carry into our podcast. So as we move forward, we will discuss four strategies and see how far they might take us in dismantling Shell and the anti-democratic and colonial power the company holds. We are aware that dismantling such a powerful company is not a piece of cake. Starting this podcast, we probably have just as many questions concerning this challenge as our listeners. But we hope that the upcoming episodes will make this complex discussion on the transition away from fossil fuels towards a just and regenerative economy accessible to a wider public. 
In order to identify and assess the tools it may take to dismantle a corporation like Shell, a good understanding of how the company operates in the context of the global political economy is necessary. This is why we will focus on the following questions in this introduction to the podcast series. What tactics have helped Shell to become the powerful oil and gas major it is today? And which ones is it likely to pursue in future? Looking at the oil and gas sector at large, we see that Europe's listed oil companies lost a total of 360 billion euros in market value, and Shell has nursed an incredible 60% decline in 2020. Has this changed in 2021? And are these factors even really what the sector at large, or Shell in particular, measure their performance on? What do the coming years hold for Shell, and how does this inform the tactics we use to unravel their power? Additionally, over the past two years, the fossil fuel sector has received massive bailouts due to the COVID pandemic. The Bank of England bought debt from Shell as part of its COVID stimulus program, and the company was able to buy cheap bonds from the European Central Bank as part of the bank's pandemic emergency purchase program. Shell received this financial support on top of ongoing subsidies from Dutch, British, and other governments, and continues to lobby these governments for favorable policies. Why do we keep supporting the corporations that are pushing us to the brink of climate collapse? And what does it tell us about the power that these corporations hold? To discuss these questions, we have with us senior researcher Odante Ahlers. She holds a PhD from Cornell University in International Planning, and she specializes in interdisciplinary research in social, ecological, and technological interactions. Rodante served as a senior lecturer in water governance and politics at the Institute for Water Education in Delft in the Netherlands. Her most recent work focuses on energy and infrastructure development and aims to reveal pressure points for achieving social and environmental justice. In the context of the Future Beyond Shell project, she co-authored the report, Still Playing the Shell Game. Rodante, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Also, a warm welcome from my, my side, uh, Rodante. So our first question is just about the state of the fossil fuel sector and of Shell at large. You know, what, what is their economic performance like? How are they doing? Well, I think it's really hard to sort of give an easy answer to this question. We see that over the past two years, things have changed tremendously. Last year, oil price dropped dramatically, and now it's just soaring. And so is the gas price. And we're talking about scarcity, and all of a sudden, we need the fossil fuel sector. So um, I'm going to try and answer as best as I can. And most of my answers are based on the report Still Playing the Shell Game, which we wrote with a bunch of people. Um, um, a bunch of activists and researchers from different organizations. So I'm basing this a little on, the, on that research. But of course, I have my own opinion. Um, so I, uh, they are not responsible for my, uh, my statements, of course. But yeah, today, so we, today we've been seeing these last months, the, the oil and gas prices steadily increasing. And this whole debate about increasing scarcity and the need for fossil fuels, oh, oh, oh. And so the sector is becoming yet again a little bit more popular. And we see this whole thing that happened last year um, sort of fading away. And for Shell itself, 
we see that production is up. Um, they have increased their dividends. They've actually reduced their debt a little. Um, and their market capitalization has increased to 190 billion US dollars. Uh, I think that was in September. Um, last year, it was 134. Um, so it, has, it is increasing. So Shell's doing quite well for Shell's bottom line goal as they have purposely and profit, profitably do business to generate shareholder value. Uh, I think things are going quite well, actually. Um, of course, uh, yeah. So I think for the sector itself, it's going well. For But this is not all of the sector. And I think COVID has had some impact in particular parts of the sector. So I think last year has uh, brought changes within this sector. But we can talk about that. Sure. So thanks, Rudanza. I You're making this comparison a little bit of the past few months or the past year as compared to, you know, the COVID pandemic and, you know, the, the start of that. So I'm wondering how the sector fared during the COVID pandemic uh, and any thoughts on Shell in particular? Yeah, we saw last year that the price of oil uh, plummeted. And I think Brent went very, very low, Brent oil price, but the, the Western Texas WTI is called even went negative. And so this was all linked to COVID. And we argued in the report that that is not correct, that things had not been going so well beforehand. And that market price is never something that naturally happens because of circumstance, but the market price is constructed. Some work by Anna Zalek at York University on oil futures and how market price comes about is really helpful. But we saw last year in the first few months um, of 2020, uh, Brent oil crude price plummeted, not because of COVID, but because Saudi Arabia and Russia decided to open up production and not hold to the OPEC rules of restraining production to restrain um, uh, the amount of oil on the market. So it was, the, the market was flushed with oil, price went down. And of course, it's very easy for PricewaterhouseCoopers and, and McKenzie to link that to COVID, but this had nothing to do with COVID. And furthermore, or nothing to do, it, no, it had to do with the way the producers between themselves um, are trying to make a stake for the market. It also has to do, we think, that um, with the strategies of the oil and gas sector of the past 20 years, and in particular, their financial strategy. Because in the first two decades of the 21st century, um, Shell could, Shell, for example, could have chosen to spend the $237 billion that went to shareholders or to buy shares back to making fixed capital stock more climate proof or more social. Um, instead, it has accrued a lot of debt. Um, it relies on a lot of potential stranded assets and actually cuts 9,000 jobs. So every euro they spend on, on these exorbitant payouts to executives and shareholders or even shift to tax havens, they did not spend on sustainable or fair or decent jobs um, that would allow workers to, to fare through something as a COVID pandemic or that would stabilize an oil market price or that would take us away from oil, but into other sources of energy. So I think that, that this, this financial strategy of, of decades has also led to an oil sector 
that is just really not prepared uh, for um, a healthy community or ecosystem. And when there's a crisis, that is not really their problem. Yeah, so, so is it fair to say over the past number of decades that you know, Shell's performance and maybe the fossil fuel sectors at large has been sort of tenuous or um, mixed at best, um, as or you know, because in the in the report you do characterize this sort of downward trend in terms of pr uh, price oil prices, but also uh, increasing debt. So their performance is not going well, or is even if the past couple of months say has been they've been doing better. But I think the shareholder says their performance is just fine because they have been able to increase dividend. So they've, and because this is their primary sort of goal to generate shareholder value, I think if you, if they are examined on that, they're doing all right. Of course, if we examine on how they pay their employees or kind of subcontracting projects they have, uh, then we have a whole different picture or how they deal with um, communities that have suffered pollution or, you know, any of that. Uh, we see a different uh, story. Yeah. So I, I, think it, I think in Shell's own perspective, it is doing all right. Yeah. I think, I think one sector that has really suffered from COVID is the shale production sector because it's a very, very expensive way of producing oil. And uh, they need that oil price to be high to, to please the, 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 how they're financed. So some of these um, companies have gone broke and some of the banks that finance them are also struggling. And this, of course, could happen to all of the oil and gas related assets in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah, you st already started uh, talking a little bit about the sort of tactics you have analyzed um, in, in, in the report. And I'm curious if you could maybe elaborate a bit more about a couple of these tactics that you uh, find particularly, yeah, that are really central to why Shell has become this powerful, powerful corporation it is today, but also maybe based on that. I'm curious to hear if you can uh, yeah, maybe do a prognosis what you expect from Shell in the upcoming months, years uh, to do. Like what will be, how are they, will, how will they try to stay alive? I think um, in, the, in the report, we identified four obstacles uh, that prevent Shell from participating uh, towards a meaningful just energy transition. And we identified the first one is their focus on profit maximization as a capitalist company in a capitalist system. Uh, the second one, uh, their, the use of inequality and ecosystem degradation uh, to make, to produce cheaply and sell expensively and make, you know, profit. And third, uh, how they undermine democracy by using lobbying, revolving doors, even allegations of corruption. And the first, fourth one is um, the way they tell their story and the way they project the future of the sector. And I can go into each of them. I think, his, I think we need to also understand that we live in a society that's, that's very, very dependent on very high consumption of energy. 
and it's very, very unequal and destructive uh, production and distribution. And this has allowed Shell to develop these tactics, um, increase debt, uh, pay their shareholders, and, and do this destruction because um, we've not been able, um, and I'm not sure who the we is at this point, but to, to um, they've been able to get away with, with murder, literally, also historically, colonially, um, and they've not had to pay for it. I think in the future, um, they were not going to really deviate very much from these tactics because they these tactics have served them well and their shareholders are still supporting them, but they're also still polit supported politically. Um, but of course, they work very hard at doing exactly, at, at pleasing these two groups. Um, and I think in terms, uh, as we've shown in the report, uh, their importance of, of keeping dividends high. Now, as soon as they're making some money in 2021, the first thing they do is increase dividends. So they want these shareholders to be happy with them um, and buying back shares so that there are less shares in the market so that dividends can be higher per share. Um, and I think the second thing is uh, we do not see them. We see them cutting 9,000 jobs last year during COVID. So we don't really see them caring much more for good jobs or good wages or decent wages. Uh, we see them selling off assets rather than cleaning up their assets or decommissioning them. So I don't see them changing their tactics so much. And I think this is all possible because of this, um, the way they, what we've identified as undermining democracy is because their business model is very much built on their connection within politics and having these revolving doors uh, of people who worked with them. This is certainly very clearly the case in, in the Netherlands and it'd be nice research to see to what extent that is the case elsewhere. Um, we did not do that research, but we did it for the Netherlands. And you see the revolving doors of very, very high placed politicians, ministers, foreign affairs. We recently had uh, the situation with um, our minister, foreign minister of foreign affairs, Sigrid Kaag, who has been supporting the whole gas pipeline from Russia, because Shell, of course, is a very, very close partner of Gazprom. Um, and so, so that there's Dutch European support for this gas line. Um, as for as for the revolving doors, the revolving doors doesn't only allow them to, for example, uh, influence local policy, but also European policy and regulation. It also allows them to influence policies around taxation, um, but it also allows them to keep investment agreements in place, such as the energy charter, which has been very, very important for the oil and gas sector, certainly in the future, if climate um, adaptation policy implies that gas companies have to give up projects. And then using this energy charter treaty, they can actually get compensation. And uh, this is currently going on. It's also the route that has enabled Exxon and Shell to get 90 million compensations for revenue lost uh, for the Groningen uh, gas um, projects. And they have secured that 90 million compensation, while of course households in Groningen uh, who have suffered damage have not all secured their compensation. So they've been very successful in doing this. And I think they are still very successful uh, and they'll keep on investing in those revolving doors. I think also in terms of lobbying, they've been very successful in lobbying at the EU level. And we see that uh, 
newspapers like Le Monde, but also the organization Corporate Europe Observatory, did some really nice work about the amount of euros that go into investing um, into the lobbying of policy and regulation at the EU level. And similar work has been done in the US as well. And I think the other tactic that they need more work on, and, and they used to be really good at, um, but lately has been failing a little, is of what we called our fourth um, obstacle of their storytelling, their ways of presenting the world in the future through their scenarios and the way they do their marketing and, and their advertising. And you see now that the sector is trying to sort of rebrand itself away from fossil and energy towards power, powering people, um, which is supposed to sound very constructive. Um, but of course, um, Shell has lately not been very successful in, in that greenwashing. Recently in August, the Dutch um, advertising regulator has judged that their um, advertising um, is misleading. And this concerned an advertising campaign that Shell had that if the customer paid a cent extra, they would be driving <laughs> CO2 neutral, which of course is ridiculous. But anyway, they were able to run that campaign for quite a while. And only because citizens take action and take them to the regulator has this, is this being stopped. But um, so they need to, I think they're going to spend much more energy in, in sort of rebranding and advertising. And you see that in their budgets, that the, their marketing and advertising budget is increasing. So I think they're going to be going towards that tactic. Um, they do also still seek subsidies. Um, they have secured, Shell and ExxonMobil secured a 2.4 billion euro subsidy from the Dutch government to develop carbon capture and storage facilities. So this is their tactic. Their tactic, I think, is to seek technological um, uh, or funding or finance or development for technological solutions towards net zero rather than towards zero emissions. So to capture carbon capture storage and um, from green, from gray to green hydrogen, um, gas, of course, these sort of false solutions to the whole uh, climate change issue. So I think that they're going to continue that tactic and I think they're going to be very successful in it. I think they're probably currently very busy trying to get Green Deal. But in the meantime, they are producing. They are still producing and they're also shifting a little bit uh, or they have shifted considerably from oil to gas and they've shifted from oil production to oil marketing. So oil trading. But you see that they are still producing gas. They are still into production and they are still very much into fossil fuels. That is their main business, and they've not really, they've shifted a little to renewables, but it's insignificant in relation to their fossil fuel projects. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, it's hearing and learning more about how many subsidies the oil and gas industry is, is receiving, how much public money is, is being invested to support these corporations that I think are not really serving us in you know, solving the climate or overcoming the uh, climate crisis is, I think, very confronting. Um, there's been one report published um, by uh, All Change International, amongst others, that is saying globally gov governments spent more than 500 billion on subsidies uh, for fossil fuels. So, and during the corona, uh, in the onset of the corona pandemic, of course, uh, 
many governments issued bailouts um, related to the pandemic for for a few corporations. And I felt there was very little discussion, or at least in the Netherlands, about also about whether this should happen or not. I know uh, a different nutshell, but Callum received uh, a bailout from the Dutch government. And I'm curious to hear more from you how how you see this you know how do you see should we continue with this pattern of of yeah bailing out these corporations are there any like positives about this because often it's also said yeah at this point we are still to a certain extent um reliant on the services of shell etc so i'm curious to hear what you what your thoughts are on this Well, I think your point about the positive bailout, I mean, the fact that they got this 2.4 billion subsidy for this carbon capture storage, it will take place in the port of Rotterdam. And Port of Rotterdam is a central, central driver of the Dutch economy. So um, this is how they sell it. You know, if you want the Dutch economy to be thriving, you need to you need to invest in the sectors that are that are making it run. And that is for a big part Tata Steel or uh, the Port of Rotterdam. It is these um, companies that are not exactly um, contributing to a future that is um, more environmentally or human friendly. So the economy is used. I think the amount of subsidies that are actually going to these companies is unclear. And bailouts in terms of Shell, oil and gas, I'm not sure. But I do know that the European bank and the UK bank and the Dutch bank um, did provide corporate bonds. So very, very cheap money that um, these companies and certainly Shell used, that they used to have cheap debt. So they were able to borrow a lot of money for very little under the notion of COVID or under the notion of, you know, the, the, the sector needing to be propped up. And I really don't think this is a good idea at all. So there's no redeeming aspects to these subsidies or these bailouts at all. Is that, is that correct? Do you think? I think the only thing, no, I don't. I, I personally, I don't, I don't think so. I think you could make an argument for subsidy that are strictly controlled and very strictly geared to particular issues. For example, re-educating or reschooling the workforce away from coal, coal, oil, and gas towards a future uh, for them in which they can find jobs in new sectors or in renewable sectors or something, or subsidies that help decommission oil and gas installations, but also under very strict regulation that this compensates and cleans up. Um, and that, of course, it cannot go hand in hand with dividend increases or exorbitant salaries for executive management. So that, you know, you have to put in conditions like the wage differential cannot be more than, I don't know, I don't know what's fair, one to 10, one to one, whatever. Um, so I, I think it's really, um, I think the only way you, you could possibly do it is very strict and controlled targets, but I really think you should spend your money on restructuring something like Shell into a sort of public utility um, or spend your money. And yeah, I think maybe as a start, I don't know, 
in, in reschooling um, the workforce and giving them a future beyond fossil fuels, in supporting communities to produce and organize their own power, to also increase education on sacrifice zones and how to stop creating more sacrifice zones and compensate the sacrifice zones out there and connect people to these sacrifice zones, knowing that their energy consumption is linked to you know, degradating lithium expanses in Argentina because they're driving an electric car. Is to, I think that's where finance and, and public funding should go to, you know, to, to repair, to recover, and to reconstruct um, towards a future that is not only good for the bent from burdens of this world. Exactly. And, and, <laughs> do you, and I'm wondering, you know, there, do you expect more of these bailouts, despite the fact that I think we can agree that they serve only the sort of CEO or the C-suite of companies like Shell at the expense of most of the population and our environment? Um, you know, like, do you expect more bailouts for the oil industry in the near future? Yes, I do, because I think, unfortunately, I think the whole banking system, there is a, a wonderfully um, a depressing, but a well-written report by the French called The Green Swan. And it explains exactly how the whole banking sector or our financial sector is, is, is sort of um, um, implicated in the oil and gas industry, in the fossil industry, in the energy industry. Energy being so basic to everything we do and um, us being so addicted to it our society in particular sections of our society, which is very clear right now. I mean, now they're talking about energy poverty because of scarcity. I mean, we were talking about energy poverty years ago and nobody listened. Um, but because we're so hooked on this stuff, I guess, and the financial industry is so implicated, um, I think the, the political, if we do not, if we are not able to structurally change anything, the political system will continue to bail out the sector because it's financially dependent. It's the financial sector hinges upon it. Or I think maybe some of the funding should go there or some of the attention should go. How do you de-link that? And, and how do you move away from Shell, you know, recently selling a lot of assets um, and rather than selling them, decommissioning them. And, and how do you do that without then bringing down uh, economies. I mean, I think Nigeria, for example, started a whole discussion about diversification of their economy because they really, really suffered last year with the low oil prices being so dependent on their oil revenues. Um, but I'm just hoping that this increase in oil price right now doesn't sort of give everybody this idea like, oh, you know, it was just a hitch. Yeah, it's a, it's a feature of the system, not just a, a temporary bug. So you mentioned a little bit, you know, this idea of diversification um, and the need to decommission instead of uh, asset, you know, infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure assets that Shell has, as opposed to pumping more money into into the company. But so, what would, can, yeah, could you build on that a little bit? What would putting a stop to subsidies or bailouts mean for Shell's future? Um, you know, what would a halt in public funding mean for 
for a company like Shell? I think for if they would lose political support for their, um, um, I, I think it would be an interesting research to see to what extent the investment that Shell does to lobby um, if that isn't as much as they get through bailouts and subsidies. I'm not sure. That's a bold statement. But I wonder. I think, of course, another big issue of subsidies, taxation, and, and the way they've been able to avoid paying taxes and using and profit shifting and, and tax havens. And, of course, that's a big thing. So making them start to pay the taxes that are due, that they should pay, would be a beginning. Uh, would it break them financially? I, I don't know. I find that really hard to say. I'm not sure. If they are that dependent on the bailout and subsidies, I think they are dependent on politicians preventing a real change to the system. I think they are, I think the revolving doors and the lobbies and the you know, the surplus extraction from workers and environment is where they do finally, what they do finally thrive on more. Stopping that, making, you know, Having them pay fair wages, having them pay taxes, having them follow the rules and regulations of a democratic, fair system, I think that would make their business model a bit more complicated and jeopardize it more. Definitely. I, I have uh, just one question in terms of putting Shell and the fossil fuel sector and their subsidies, bailouts, and relationships to, to governments in, in an international perspective. Um, you know, is it, is it the case that many governments or most governments around the world have these ties? Or is, it, is this these relationships between fossil fuel corporations and governments particularly strong in particular parts of the world? Yeah, I think so. I think um, not, uh, you know, if we look at the history of the 20th century, we see a, a very particular history of, of the fossil industry. Um, we see countries like Mexico and, um, you know, Mexico, for example, in the 1930s, having their own oil, were able to build a democratic, actually were able to build a democratic system um, within the Ejidatario and a private sector, a social and a private sector system, using their oil revenues, but at the same time, overspending and, and the, the unequal relations between the global north and the south, of course, led to the oil crisis in the 1970s and, and, and also created the huge debt relations that many of these countries have had. So I think the, 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 the fossil fuel industry has dramatically impacted development globally. And the way that, that, that um, the, the global north has been able to extract and exploit resources um, in the global south, yeah, I think that's a global phenom phenomenon. I think it, it happened in, and, and, and very much linked to colonial practices, apartheid, and, and environmental racism um, made all of that very possible and, and still today. I think we see it, we, we see it happening again in the sacrifice zones um, for lithium um, and also in the, the Western Sahara for solar and wind energy. So I, I, yeah, this is part, also part of the system. 
Yeah, as I think one of the last questions that we have for you today, uh, Rodante, I um, I would like to hear a little bit more. Of course, this podcast and the upcoming episodes will be all about investigating how we can dismantle Shell. And I would like to hear from you, maybe based also on the future scenarios you've sketched out uh, beforehand, what you, yeah, the tactics you think still Shell is going to be reliant on in future. I would like to hear what you think the biggest, um, yeah, what will be needed to actually put an end to Shell and what the biggest hurdles might be. I think the biggest hurdle is the way that energy has structured our lives and how, to the extent that it has and the way it still has, and how any change to that um, brings an enormous um, resistance. Um, certainly by the powerful fossil uh, industry, um, but also the political power behind it. I think we need to, for example, when we, um, the situation, when we shifted from coal to gas in the Netherlands was done very, very quickly in the 1950s, 60s. But it was also made possible because it was, gas was cheaper and easier and it burned better and it was just made life easier. And this, the transition we have to make today isn't necessarily one that is easier or cheaper or, 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 and, and that brings about a lot of problems that makes it hard to get, you know, a large collective around it and to get the, uh, and I think also political, a larger political acceptance around it. That's one thing. And I think that the resistance by the powers that be um, remain enormous given how we can, how the amount of bailouts during COVID that went to companies and businesses and did not go to people, communities, or healthcare, or education. I mean, the, the system is, is very skewed towards a particular economic system. So I think to dismantle Shell also would mean to yeah, dismantle that aspect of the system that prioritizes uh, profit over people, I think. And so I think if I think if there is a future shell, we need to think about energy that is not a profit producing commod commodity. It's not a commodity. It shouldn't be a commodity. It's something that, yeah, that should be a public it should be a public utility, I think. Energy should so the shells of the world should become public utilities. And whether that is worker worker um run or community-led or public and uh, municipal-led, that's, that's to be seen. I'm just really, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just really disappointed by, and surprised maybe, um, by how we saw that during COVID, actually air quality went up, you know, and, and you saw stuff was possible and how easily that's been forgotten. Thank you so much, Rodante, for sharing all these insights. I really appreciate how you brought to light the political ties Shell has with people in power and the political inertia that makes it possible for corporations like Shell to continue doing what they've done for decades, even centuries. So thank you very much for that. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this introduction to the Future Beyond Shell podcast. 
Hopefully, we have piqued your interest in investigating specific tools to dismantle Shell in the forthcoming episodes. The four strategies we will be tackling are bankruptcy, carbon pricing, court cases, and nationalization. Like in today's show, one or two experts will join us in each episode to shed light on these different pathways. If you like the show, please follow and like us on your podcast platform of choice and join us for the next episode. Check out our show notes to learn more about the reports we mentioned in today's episode. And to find out more about a future beyond shell, take a look at futurebeyondshell.org. See you next time.